Hello and welcome to the Storybrook Podcast. This is episode 21 in which we are reading chapter 11 of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Dorian has now hidden the portrait within his house. How will he next proceed? Don't forget, you can listen to our previous chapters on the odd-numbered episodes of this podcast and tune into the even-numbered episodes for our book club discussion group on those chapters. Here is chapter 11. For years, Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than nine large paper copies of the first edition, and had them bound in different colours so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature over which he seemed, at times, to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, the wonderful young Parisian in whom the romantic and the scientific temperaments were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself. And, indeed, the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had even lived it. In one point, he was more fortunate than the novel's fantastic hero. He never knew, never indeed had any cause to know, that somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors and polished metal surfaces and still water which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life, and was occasioned by the sudden decay of beauty that had once, apparently, been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure, cruelty has its place, that he used to read the latter part of the book, with its really tragic, if somewhat overemphasized, account of the sorrow and despair of one who had himself lost what in others, and in the world, he had most dearly valued. For the wonderful beauty that had so fascinated Basil Hallward, and many others besides him, seemed never to leave him. Even those who had heard the most evil things against him, and from time to time strange rumours about his mode of life crept through London and became the chatter of the clubs, could not believe anything to his dishonour when they saw him. He had always the look of one who had kept himself unspotted from the world. Men who talked grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to recall to them the memory of the innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one, so charming and graceful as he was, could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensual. Often, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends, or thought they were so, he himself would creep upstairs to the locked room, open the door with the key that never left him now, and stand with a mirror in front of the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him, looking now at the evil and ageing face on the canvas, and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamoured of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care, and sometimes with a monstrous and terrible delight, the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead or crawled around the heavy sensual mouth, wondering sometimes which were the more horrible, the signs of sin or the signs of age. He would place his white hands beside the coarse, bloated hands of the picture and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the failing limbs. There were moments, indeed, at night, when, lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks, which, under an assumed name and in disguise, it was his habit to frequent, he would think of the ruin he had brought upon his soul, with a pity that was all the more poignant because it was purely selfish. 
but moments such as these were rare. That curiosity about life which Lord Henry had first stirred in him as they sat together in the garden of their friend seemed to increase with gratification. The more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. Yet he was not really reckless, at any rate in his relations to society. Once or twice every month during the winter, and on each Wednesday evening while the season lasted, he would throw open to the world his beautiful house and have the most celebrated musicians of the day to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. His little dinners, in the setting of which Lord Henry always assisted him, were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited as for the exquisite taste shown in the decoration of the table, with its subtle symphonic arrangements of exotic flowers and embroidered cloths and antique plates of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men who saw, or fancied that they saw, in Dorian Gray the true realisation of a type which they had often dreamed in Eton or Oxford days, a type that was to combine something with the real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction and perfect manner of a citizen of the world. To them, he seemed to be of the company of those whom Dante describes as having sought to make themselves perfect by worship of beauty. Like Gautier, he was one for whom the visible world existed. And certainly, to him, life itself was the first, the greatest of the arts, and for it all the other arts seemed to be but a preparation. Fashion, by which what is really fantastic becomes, for a moment, universal. And dandyism, which, in its own way, is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of beauty, had, of course, their fascination for him. His mode of dressing, and the particular styles that from time to time he affected, had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair balls and Pall Mall club windows, who copied him in everything that he did and tried to reproduce the accidental charm of his graceful, though to him only half-serious, fopperies. For a while, he was but too ready to accept that position that was almost immediately offered to him on his coming of age, and found, indeed, a subtle pleasure in the thought that he might really become, to the London of his own day, what to imperial Neronian Rome, the author of the Satyricon, had once been. Yet, in his inmost heart... He desired to be something more than a mere arbiter elegantarium, to be consulted on the wearing of a jewel or the knotting of a necktie or the conduct of a cane. He sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles and find in the spiritualising of the senses its highest realisation. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, been decried, men feeling a natural instinct of terror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves, and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organised forms of existence. But it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses had never been understood, and that they had remained savage and animal, merely because the world had sought to starve them into submission, or to kill them by pain instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. As he looked back upon man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss. So much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad, willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear, and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than that fancied degradation from which, in their ignorance, they had sought to escape. Nature, in her wonderful irony, driving out the anchorite to feed with the wild animals of the desert, and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, 
There was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life and to save it from that harsh, uncomely puritanism that is having in our own day its curious revival. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly, yet it was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. Its aim, indeed, was to be experience itself, and not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter as they might be. Of the asceticism that deadens the senses, as of the vulgar profligacy that dulls them, it was to know nothing. But it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon the moments of a life that it is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that make us almost enamoured of death, or one of those nights of horror and misshapen joy when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, an instinct with that vivid life that lurks in all grotesques and that lends to gothic art its enduring vitality, this art being, one might fancy especially the art of those whose minds have been troubled with the malady of reverie. Gradually white fingers creep through the curtains, and they appear to tremble. In black, fantastic shapes, dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there. Outside there is the stirring of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work, or the sigh and sob of the wind coming down from the hills and wandering round the silent house, as though it feared to wake the sleepers. And yet must needs call forth sleep from her purple cave. Veil after veil of thin, dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the forms and colours of things are restored to them, and we watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The wan mirrors get back to their mimic life. The flameless tapers stand where we had left them, and beside them lies the half-cut book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had worn at the ball, or the letter that we had been afraid to read or that we had read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night comes back the real life that we had known. We have to resume it where we had left off, and there steals over us a terrible sense of the necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearsome round of stereotyped habits, or a wild longing, it may be, that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew in darkness for our pleasure, a world in which things would have fresh shapes and colours, and be changed or have other secrets, a world in which the past would have little or no place, or survive at any rate in no conscious form of obligation or regret, the remembrance even of joy having its bitterness and the memories of their pleasure, their pain. It was the creation of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the true object, or amongst the true objects, of life, in his search for sensations that would be at once new and delightful, and possess that element of strangeness that is so essential to romance. He would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew to be really alien to his nature, abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then, having, as it were, caught their colour and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with that curious indifference that is not incompatible with a real ardour of temperament, and that, indeed, according to certain modern psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumoured of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic Communion, and certainly the Roman ritual had always had a great attraction for him. The daily sacrifice, more awful really than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much by a superb rejection of the evidence of the senses as by the primitive simplicity of its elements and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolise. 
He loved to kneel down on the cold marble pavement and watch the priest in his stiff, flowered dalmatic, slowly and with white hands, moving aside the veil of the tubernacle or raising aloft the jewelled lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid water that at times, one would fain think, is indeed the Panis Calestis, the bread of angels, or, robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into the chalice and smiting his breast for his sins. The fuming censers that the grave boys in their lace and scarlet tossed into the air like great gilt flowers had their subtle fascination for him. As he passed out, he used to look with wonder at the black confessionals, and long to sit in the dim shadow of one of them and listen to men and women whispering through the worn grating the true story of their lives. But he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system, or of mistaking for a house in which to live an inn that is but suitable for the sojourn of a night, or for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail. Mysticism, with its marvellous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antinomianism that always seems to accompany it, moved him for a season, and for a season he inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwinismus movement in Germany, and found a curious pleasure in tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain, or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on a certain physical conditions morbid or healthy, normal or diseased. Yet, as has been said of him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared with life itself. He felt keenly conscious of how barren all intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, have their spiritual mysteries to reveal. And so he would now study perfumes and the secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily-scented oils and burning odorous gums from the east. He saw that there was no mood of the mind that had not its counterpart in the sensuous life, and set himself to discover their true relations, wondering what there was in frankincense that made one mystical, and in ambergris that stirred one's passions, and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, and in champak that stained the imagination, and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfumes and to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots and scented pollen-laden flowers, of aromatic balms and of dark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of hovenia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul. At another time he devoted himself entirely to music, and in a long lattice room with vermilion and gold ceiling, and walls of olive-green lacquer, he used to give curious concerts in which shawled Tunisians plucked at the strained strings of monstrous lutes, and, crouching upon scarlet mats, slim-turbaned Indians blew through long pipes of reed or brass, and charmed, or feigned to charm, great hooded snakes and horrible horned adders. The harsh intervals and shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times when Schubert's grace and Chopin's beautiful sorrows and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unheeded to his ear. He collected together from all parts of the world the strangest instruments that could be found, either in the tombs of dead nations or among the few savage tribes that have survived contact with Western civilizations and loved to touch and try them. He had the mysterious Jew Paris of the Rio Indians that women are not allowed to look at and that even youths may not see until they have been subjected to fasting and scourging, and the earthen jars of the Peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds and flutes of human bones such as Alfonso de Oval heard in Chile, and the sonorous green jaspers that are found near Cusco and give forth a note of singular sweetness. 
He had painted gourds filled with pebbles that rattled when they were shaken, the long clarin of the Mexicans into which the performer does not blow, but through which he inhales the air, the harsh chure of the Amazon tribes that is sounded by the sentinels who sit all day long in high trees and can be heard, it is said, at a distance of three leagues, the teponatsli that has two vibrating tongues of wood and is beaten with sticks that are smeared with an elastic gum obtained from the milky juice of plants, the yossel bells of the Aztecs that are hung in clusters like grapes, and a huge cylindrical drum covered with the skins of great serpents, like the one that Bernal Diaz saw when he went with Cortez in the Mexican temple, and of whose doleful sound he has left us so vivid a description. The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him, and he felt a curious delight in the thought that art, like nature, has her monsters, things of bestial shape and with hideous voices. Yet, after a time, he wearied of them, and would sit in his box at the opera, either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to Tannhauser, and seeing in the prelude to that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On one occasion, he took up the study of jewels, and appeared at a costume ball as Anne de Joyeuse, Admiral of France, in a dress covered with 560 pearls. This taste enthralled him for years, and, indeed, may be said to have never left him. He would often spend a whole day settling and resettling in their cases the various stones that he had collected, such as the olive-green chrysoberyl that turns red by lamplight, the simophane with its wire-like line of silver, the pistachio-coloured peridot, rose-pink and wine-yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet with tremulous four-rayed stars, flame-red cinnamon stones, orange and violet spinels, and amethysts with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of the sunstone, and the moonstone's pearly whiteness, and the broken rainbow of the milky opal. He procured from Amsterdam three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of colour, and had a turquoise de la ville roche that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories also about jewels. In Alfonso's clericalis disciplina, a serpent was mentioned with eyes of real jacinth, and in the romantic history of Alexander, the conqueror of Amathia was said to have found in the Vale of Jordan snakes with collars of real emeralds growing on their backs. There was a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostratus told us, and by the exhibition of golden letters and a scarlet robe, the monster could be thrown into a magical sleep and slain. According to the great alchemist Pierre de Boniface, the diamond rendered a man invisible, and the agate of India made him eloquent. The carnelian appeased anger, and the hyacinth provoked sleep, and the amethyst drove away the fumes of wine. The garnet cast out demons, and the hydropicus deprived the moon of her colour. The selenite waxed and waned with the moon, and the melosius that discovers thieves could be affected only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Camillus had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad. That was a certain antidote against poison. The bezoa that was found in the heart of the Arabian deer was a charm that could cure the plague. In the nests of Arabian birds was the Aspilates that, according to Democritus, kept the wearer from any danger by fire. The king of Salem rode through his city, with a large ruby at his hand, at the ceremony of his coronation. The gates of the palace of John the Priest were made of sardius, with the horn of the horned snake inwrought, so that no man might bring poison within. Over the gable were two golden apples, in which were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day and the carbuncles by night. In Lodge's strange romance, A Marguerite of America, it was stated that in the chamber of the queen one could behold all the chaste ladies of the world, inchased out of silver, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires, and green emeralds. Marco Polo had seen the inhabitants of Zipangu, 
place rose-coloured pearls in the mouths of the dead. A sea monster had been enamoured of the pearl that the diver brought to King Perozes, and had slain the thief, and mourned for seven moons over its loss. When the Huns lured the king into the great pit, he flung it away. Procopius tells the story. Nor was it ever found again, though the emperor Anastasius offered five hundred weight of gold pieces for it. The king of Malabar had shown to a certain Venetian a rosary of three hundred and four pearls, one for every god that he worshipped. When the Duke de Valentinois, son of Alexander VI, visited King Louis XII of France, his horse was loaded with gold leaves, according to Brantome, and his cap had double rows of rubies that threw out a great light. Charles of England had ridden in stirrups hung with 421 diamonds. Richard II had a coat, valued at 30,000 marks, which was covered in ballast rubies. Hall described Henry VIII on his way to the tower previous to his coronation, as wearing a jacket of raised gold, the placard embroidered with diamonds and other rich stones, and a great borderike about his neck of large ballasses. The favourites of James I wore earrings of emerald set in gold filigrane. Edward II gave to Piers Gaveston a suit of red gold armour studded with jacinths, a collar of gold roses set with turquoise stones, and a skullcap parsemé with pearls. Henry II wore jewelled gloves reaching to the elbow, and had a hawk glove sewn with twelve rubies and fifty-two great orients. The ducal hat of Charles the Rash, the last Duke of Burgundy of his race, was hung with pear-shaped pearls and studded with sapphires. How exquisite life had once been, how gorgeous in its pomp and decoration. Even to read the luxury of the dead was wonderful. Then he turned his attention to embroideries and to the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, and he always had an extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up, he was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time had brought on beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times, and knights of horror repeated the story of their shame, but he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things. Where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-coloured robe, on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked by grown girls for the pleasure of Athena? Where the huge valerium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, that titan sail of purple on which was represented the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white gilt-reined steeds? He longed to see the curious table napkins wrought for the priest of the sun, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast. The mortuary cloth of King Chilperic, with its three hundred golden bees, the fantastic robes that excited the indignation of the Bishop of Pontus, and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all in fact the painter can copy from nature, and the coat that Charles of Orleans once wore, on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song beginning, Madame, je suis tout joyeux, the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note, of square shape in those days, formed with four pearls. He read of the room that was prepared at the Palace of Reims for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy, and was decorated with 321 parrots made in broidery, emblazoned with the king's arms, and 561 butterflies whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen, the whole worked in gold. Catherine de' Medici had a morning bed made for her of black velvet powdered with crescents and suns. Its curtains were of damask, with leafy wreaths and garlands, figured upon a gold and silver ground, and fringed around the edges with broideries of pearls, and it stood in a room hung with rows of the Queen's devices, cut in black velvet upon a cloth of silver. 
Louis XIV had gold-embroidered caryatides, fifteen feet high in his apartment. The state bed of Sobieski, king of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade, embroidered in turquoises with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased, and profusely set with enameled and jewelled medallions. It had been taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood beneath the tremulous gilt of its canopy. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work, getting the dainty Delhi muslins, finely wrought with gold thread palmates, and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings. The dacagauzes, that for their transparency are known in the east as woven air and running water and evening dew, strange figured cloths from Java, elaborate yellow Chinese hangings, books bound in tawny satins or fair blue silks and wrought with fleur-de-lis, birds and images, veils of lacus worked in Hungary point, Sicilian brocades and stiff Spanish velvets, Georgian work with its gilt coins and Japanese pacusas with their green-toned golds and their marvellously plumaged birds, he had a special passion, also, for ecclesiastical vestments, as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In long cedar chests that lined the west gallery of his house, he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens of what is really the raiment of the Bride of Christ, who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen that she may hide the pallid, macerated body that is worn by the suffering she seeks for, and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranate set in six-petaled formal blossoms, beyond which, on either side, was the pineapple device wrought in seed pearls. The orphreys were divided into panels, representing scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in coloured silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the 15th century. Another cope was a green velvet, embroidered with the heart-shaped groups of acanthus leaves, from which spread long-stemmed white blossoms, the details of which were picked out with silver thread and coloured crystals. The morse bore a seraph's head in gold thread raised work. The orphreys were woven in a diaper of red and gold silk and were starred with medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was St. Sebastian. He had chasubles also of amber-coloured silk and blue silk and gold brocade, and yellow damask and cloth of gold, figured with the representations of the Passion and Crucifixion of Christ, and embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems, dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask, decorated with tulips and dolphins and fleur-de-lis, altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen, and many corporals, chalice veils and sideria. In the mystic offices to which such things were put, there was something that quickened his imagination. For these treasures and everything that he collected in his lovely house were to be to him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape for a season from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be born. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life, and in front of it had draped the purple and gold pool as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there would forget the hideous painted thing, and get back to his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate absorption of its mere existence. Then, suddenly, some night, he would creep out of the house, go down to dreadful places near Bluegate Fields, and stay there, day after day, until he was driven away. On his return, he would sit in front of the picture, sometimes loathing it and himself, but filled, at other times, with that pride of individualism that is half the fascination of sin and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. 
After a few years, he could not endure to be long out of England, and gave up the villa that he had shared at Trouville with Lord Henry, as well as the little white-walled-in house at Algiers where they had met more than once and spent the winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence someone might gain access to the room, in spite of the elaborate bars he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell them nothing, it was true that the portrait still preserved, under all the foulness and ugliness of the face, its marked likeness to himself. But what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What was it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet, he was afraid. Sometimes, when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank who were his chief companions, and astounding the county by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendour of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with and that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For, while he fascinated many... There were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at a West End club of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member, and it was said that on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking room of the Churchill, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he had passed his 25th year. It was rumoured that he had been seen brawling with foreign sailors in a low den, in the distant parts of Whitechapel, that he consorted with thieves and coiners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and when he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners or pass him with a sneer or look at him with cold, searching eyes as though they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights, he, of course, took no notice and in the opinion of most people, his frank, debonair manner, his charming, boyish smile, and the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that never seemed to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for they so termed them, that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that some of those who had been most intimate with him appeared, after a time, to shun him. Women who had wildly adored him, and for his sake had braved all social censure and set convention at defiance, were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror if Dorian Gray entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only increased in the eyes of many, his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security. Society, civilised society at least, is never very ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and fascinating. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals, and, in its opinion, the highest respectability is of much less value than the possession of a good chef. And, after all, it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who had given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees, as Lord Henry remarked once in discussion on the subject, and there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view for the canons of good society are, or should be, the same as the canons of art. Form is absolutely essential to it. It should have the dignity of a ceremony, as well as its unreality, and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that makes such plays delightful to us. Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such, at any rate, was Dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceived the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. 
To him, man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations, a complex, multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, and whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt, cold picture gallery of his country house, and look at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, described by Francis Osborne, in his Memories on the Reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James, as one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him in not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led? Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it had reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly, and almost without cause, give utterance, in Basil Hallward's studio, to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in gold-embroidered red doublet, jewelled surcoat, and a gilt-edged ruff and wristbands, stood Sir Anthony Sherard, with his silver and black armour piled at his feet. What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realise? Here, from the fading canvas, smiled Lady Elizabeth Devereux, in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher, and pink-slashed sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, and her left clasped an enamelled collar of white and damask roses. On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. There were large green rosettes on her little pointed shoes. He knew her life, and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. Had he something of her temperament in him? This oval, heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him. What of George Willoughby, with his powdered hair and fantastic patches? How evil he looked! The face was saturnine and swarthy, and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean, yellow hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni of the 18th century, and the friend, in his youth, of Lord Ferrars. What of the second Lord Beckenham, the companion of the Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses of the secret marriage with Miss Fitzherbert? How proud and handsome he was with his chestnut curls and insolent pose! What passions had he bequeathed? The world looked upon him as infamous. He had led the orgies at Carlton House. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed! And his mother, with her Lady Hamilton face and her moist, wine-dashed lips, he knew what he had got from her. He had got from her his beauty and his passion for the beauty of others. She laughed at him in her loose bacchant dress. There were vine leaves in her hair, and the purple spilled from the cup she was holding. The carnations of the painting had withered. But the eyes were still wonderful in the depth and brilliancy of colour. They seemed to follow him wherever he went. Yet one had ancestors in literature, as well as in one's own race, nearer perhaps in type and temperament, many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life, not as he had lived it in act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange, terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world and made sin so marvellous and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own. The hero of the wonderful novel that so influenced his life had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter he tells how, crowned with a laurel lest lightning might strike him, he had sat, as Tiberius, in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantus while dwarfs and precocks strutted around him, and the flute player mocked the swinger of the censer, and as Caligula, had caroused with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables, and supped in an ivory manger with a jewel-fronted horse, and, as Domitian, 
had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, and sick with that ennui, that terrible tedium vitae, that comes on those to whom life denies nothing, and appeared through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the circus, and then, in a litter of pearl and purple drawn by silver-shod mules, had been carried through the street of pomegranates to a house of gold, and heard men cry on Nero Caesar as he passed by, and, as Elagabalus had painted his face with colours, and plied the distaff from among the women, and brought the moon from Carthage, and given her in mystic marriage to the sun. Over and over, Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter, and the two chapters immediately following, in which, as in some curious tapestries or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife, and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from the dead thing he fondled. Pietro Barbi, the Venetian, known as Paul II, who sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formosus, and whose tiara, valued at 2,000 florins, was bought at the price of a terrible sin. Gian Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, and whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia on his white horse, with fratricide riding beside him, and his mantle stained with the blood of Perotto. Pietro Riario, the young cardinal archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtus IV. His beauty was equalled only by his debauchery, and who received Leonora of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy that he might serve at the feast as Ganymede or Hylas. Ezelin, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, and who had a passion for red blood, as other men have for red wine, the son of the fiend, as was reported, one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him for his own soul. Gian Battista Sibo, who in mockery took the name of Innocent, and in whose torpid veins the blood of the three lads was infused by a Jewish doctor. Sigismondo Malatesta, the lover of his otter, and the lord of Rimini, whose effigy was burned at Rome as the enemy of God and man, who strangled Policina with a napkin and gave poison to Ginevra d'Este in a cup of emerald, and in honour of a shameful passion, built a pagan church for Christian worship. Charles VI, who had so wildly adored his brother's wife that a leper had warned him of the insanity that was coming on him, and who, when his brain had sickened and grown strange, could only be soothed by Saracen cars painted with the images of love and death and madness, and, in his trimmed jerkin and jewelled cap and acanthus-like curls, Griffonetto Baglioni, who slew a store with his bride, and Simonetto with his page, and whose comeliness was such that, as he lay dying in the yellow piazza of Perugia, those who had hated him could not choose but weep and Atalanta, who had cursed him, blessed him. There was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night, and they troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning, poisoning by a helmet and by a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a jewelled fan, by a gilded pomander and by an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked upon evil simply as a mode through which he could realise his conception of the beautiful. This has been chapter 11 of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray is in the public domain, and the Storybook podcast exerts no undue rights over the content you have just heard. Um, apologies if my voice sounds a little different this week. I have a slight cold, and this was the worst chapter for it to come in on, because that, that was incredibly long. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week for our book club discussion on chapter 11. Goodbye. <laughs>